The priest sees Landers and walks over. The men shake hands, smile, exchange a few words. Then the priest excuses himself and enters the church to prepare for the service and don his vestments. Having said his piece, Landers is keen to leave, but Horry and the Newkirks are deep in conversation with some farmers, so he walks towards the side of the church, seeking shade. He's almost there when the babble of conversation abruptly ceases. He turns to see the priest has emerged from the church and is standing at the top of the short flight of steps. Byron Swift has changed into his robes, crucifix glinting as it catches the sun, and he's carrying a gun, a high-powered hunting rifle with a scope. It makes no sense to Landers. He's still confused as Swift raises the gun to his shoulder and calmly shoots Horry Grosvenor from a distance of no more than five metres. Grosvenor's head ruptures in a red cloud and his legs give way. He falls to the ground like a sack, as if his bones no longer exist. Conversation stops, heads turn. There's a silent moment as people struggle for comprehension. The priest fires again. Another body falls. Tom Newkirk. There is no screaming, not yet, but there is panic. Silent desperation as people start running. Landis himself bolts for the corner of the church as another shot goes screaming out into the world. He rounds the corner of the building, gaining momentary safety, but he doesn't stop running. He knows it's him the priest most wants to kill. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi there, this is Angus from Good Reading, and thanks for tuning in for this episode of the Good Reading podcast. You just heard journalist and former foreign correspondent Chris Hammer reading from the prologue of his newly released and very hotly anticipated crime novel, Scrublands. The book has been enthusiastically endorsed by the likes of Sarah Bailey, author of The Dark Lake and Into the Night, who we had in here a few weeks ago. She said that Scrublands kidnapped her for 48 hours and described the book as a force of nature. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Angus. So the book comes out today. We're recording on the 25th of July. How does it feel to finally have it out in the world and on bookshelves? Oh, it's, it's amazing. I, I'm going to nip down and find a bookstore somewhere so I can see that it's real because I'm still having a hard time believing it's all happening and that, you know, people like Sarah Bailey have been so complimentary. Yeah. Um, so we heard you reading from that prologue about the crime event that the story revolves around, the priest opening fire on his congregation. Do you have any idea what dark recesses of your imagination that concept emerged from? I don't. Look, people have asked me what's inspired the story, and there's some things I can sort of point a finger out, like the setting in this sort of drought-ravaged town. There's other things like the protagonist. Well, he's a journalist, so I know that. But the assignment he's sent to do a profile on the town a year after that shooting. Um, so... I kind of know where that comes from, but but the actual crime itself, no, I've got no idea. I've got a few suspicions. I, I think I had this idea of a priest, a, you know, with the Royal Commission and 
happening and everything that a priest would be sort of automatically suspected of, say, being part of a pedophile ring or something like that. So I think that the idea was to try and turn that on ahead a bit. But that was a long time ago and it evolved and evolved and evolved. So there's a lot of stuff in the book. Yeah, it's right. I'm thinking, no, where did that come from? Yeah, well, as you say, the book is set in a very small, very dry, intensely hot Riverina town in New South Wales called Riversend. It's a fictional town. Um, So why did you choose to actually set your story in this town? I wrote, I've written a couple of non-fiction books. I did one called The River, which was kind of like travel writing, but it was traveling through the Murray-Darling Basin at the height of the millennial drought. So this is like almost 10 years ago. And the drought was really severe and had been going for a long time by then. And I remember being out in that sort of area and it was just, the devastation was really profound on the communities as much as anything. You know, irrigation farmers without water, facing foreclosures, people leaving towns, towns dying, this kind of quiet desperation. Um, As I travelled around the whole of the Murray-Darling Basin, you'd hear these stories of suicide. It was an ever-present sort of thing. So I think it just stuck with me. And so when I started writing uh, a fiction book, like a crime book, I think the idea of the small town, a contained community was good, but that just made for such a good setting. What actually prompted you to go out and write The River in the first place? Oh, okay. So I was, I'd been working at The Age uh, in the press gallery in Canberra, and one of my rounds was environment. So there are a couple of big issues at that point, uh, emissions trading. Uh, so this was during the Rudd government. Um, but also the, the Murray-Darling Basin plan was being formulated. And I was reporting on it, but it was very much a a debate between stakeholders. It was all about water licences, gigalitres, allocations. It was very, very technical. And I got this, and I didn't understand a whole lot of it. I was thinking, well, if I don't understand it, the readers who typically in the the cities, you know, the age and the City Morning Herald, they're not going to understand it. So I thought I'll go and have a look and find out what it's really happening out there. That's with the river system. Um, and then as I travelled through, I started touching on a whole lot of other things like the culture, the Indigenous heritage, the history, what the bush means for Australia. So it was, it was great. I really liked doing it. So you've worked as a journalist for 30 years, been the chief political correspondent for The Bulletin, worked in the Canberra Press Gallery, worked as a foreign correspondent. So going back three decades, what made you actually want to get into journalism? Oh, I just like the idea of the media. And I I think I had this rather naive idea that it was kind of a creative pursuit, um, which it is in some ways, but a lot of it, of course, is more exacting than that, you know, and you don't get to make stink things up as a journalist. Um, I know people think that some journalists probably do, but, <laughs> but I wasn't. I wasn't of that ilk, and that's one of the great things about writing a fiction book is that you can just make stuff up, and it's. I, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where did you get your first job as a journalist? I first started in um, television at a local television station in Canberra called Capital Seven, back when it was. It and the ABC were the only two stations in town. And it was a very well-resourced TV station, as regional TV stations once were. 
Um, but that was lucky. So within a year or so, I was working covering politics in the old Parliament House. And then so then my career basically from then on was divided mainly between um, either doing federal politics or doing kind of international affairs. Okay. So you said you started with sort of this idea that journalism would be quite a creative pursuit. Um, So does that mean that you always sort of wanted to write creatively in more, you know, in in a novelistic way as you've done with Scrublands? Yeah, I think I did. I I mean, I, I think that was always kind of in the back of my mind. But, you know, life takes over, career takes over, family takes over. And also I think I had a kind of a lack of confidence in my ability to do it. First up, when I was young, it was kind of like I'd really like to write something, but I didn't know what to write about. And I think, you know, at school and at uni and whatever, I I did literature. But so I was reading all these very, you know, the sort of classic, modern classics, if you like. I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm never going to be able to do anything like that. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. What books were you, did you grow up on? As As a young kid, I really was taken by all the King Arthur stories. They were kind of magic to me. And, and then as I got older, they a lot of the, more of the nuance of them came through. Um, so at high school, you know, there was all the things like Shakespeare and Hemingway and all of those, and Australian uh, novelists and, and poetry. I went to school in Canberra, so the education system there is quite different and, and you can be far more focused in any one subject, particularly like like uh, English. Um, and then at uni, I went to uni up at Bathurst and did journalism, but I also did I did politics as well, but I also did literature there and did lots of you know, Moby Dick and Catch-22 and lots of Australian books, you know, Christina Stead and... The Fortunes of Richard Marnie and, you know, a, a, a kind of wide scope. So so the interesting thing is, you know, this is very much a mainstream crime fiction book, but I'm not really a crime fiction tragic. I like to, like, I guess when I was in my 20s, I read the kind of the hard-boiled detective books, you know, Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, those sorts of books, really like them. Um, one of my lecturers at Bathurst, my writing lecturer, was Peter Temple. This is back before he'd written wow. anything. But when he did, I read his books and I really, really loved his books, particularly the, the final two, Broken Shore and Truth. I, I think they're really, you know, they're a real step above, you know, your normal sort of crime book. Um, but I also read more widely. I probably, if, if you if I pointed at one kind of genre or something I'd read, it would be probably, you know, contemporary sort of literary fiction. But I'm quite happy to read a kind of airport book as well, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm... I know some authors are, are, are fantastically well-read. I'm not sure I am, but, you know, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing a lot of catching up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just out of interest, do you remember anything from being lectured by Peter Temple back at uni? Yeah. <laughs> Good things? Um, he, he was, he could be the most observic and, um, sarcastic type of person. He would, he was a brutal marker, um, 
And then he had this flip side where he'd be, you know, see him at the bar afterwards and he'd be absolutely charming and entertaining and full of stories. Um, And when he died recently, um, a lot of us from Bathurst, everyone remembers him really clearly. And we, he, and he really knew his stuff. And for sort of trainee journalists, where we're getting a lot of information about, oh, you know, we're imbued with this idea, you know, the facts matter, you have to, accuracy is important, you have to get stuff on, done on time. He was the one who was saying, no, look, how you say it is just as important as what you say, that the words matter. And there's, there's little things like he was a huge fan of the Oxford comma, for example, <laughs> you know, which is, which is not really stylistically common in Australia. Um, and, you know, the uses of colons and, and semicolons. But he, um, he's, he's, well, his comments on, on your essays or assignments were often really cutting and he would, he would happily fail, you know, 80% of the class. Whoa. Um, and when he died, some of us were commenting on a Facebook page and Jane Hutchin, the ABC journalist in India, she posted an essay that she'd kept from him where she got 40%. And I'm thinking, who keeps an essay for 30 years where you got failed? <laughs> so yeah, we, we remember him. <laughs> That's fantastic. Tough love from Peter yeah, Temple. Tough love. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after biting the bullet and getting to make stuff up and writing a novel, yeah. uh, was that process in creating characters and creating a plot different to what you expected at all? Yeah, I really like it. I really like the, the process. Like, so people will say, oh, how often do you write? But people are often interested in, in the, how different authors uh, work. Um, it's almost like, you know, all you know the secret, so what's the secret? Um, and I think people work in different ways, but I typically work every day. You know, in the mornings I'll, I'll write every day and people say, oh, wow, you know, I wish I had that self-discipline. But for me it's not really self-discipline because I enjoy doing it. So it's like, you know, if you like jogging and you, you feel a bit weird if you don't go jogging, well, I feel a bit weird if I haven't sort of done a bit of work. And it's... Some days it's not that productive in the sense that I don't write so much, but usually it means you're working through some sort of problem and another day it'll just kind of flow out. Um, and it does, for me, it kind of takes on a life of its own, um, which is a kind of a, you know, when it's working well, it's kind of like this magical thing. It's, you know, it, it sort of just emerges from somewhere and it's a fantastic feeling, you know, once you've done that, it's like, oh, wow, look, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Other days, well, oh, that's not so good. <laughs> yeah, a bit more painful. Um, so can you tell us about your main character, Martin Skarsden, and why he's ended up in Riversend? Okay, so Martin's the protagonist. He's the person we follow through the story. Uh, it's not told in the first person, but he's in every scene, and as the layers of the town appeal back. He's the one who's who's discovering this. Now, Martin has a past, uh, which is only, it's not really spelt out, but one thing is spelt out that a, a year before, around the same time as the shooting happened with the priest, he was in the um, 
in the Middle East in Gaza and was trapped in a car boot for a while. Um, and it kind of traumatised him. He's a bit unsure why it traumatised him so badly. So his editor, who's uh, very supportive, a year on, says, OK, time to get out of the office. Go to this town. It's a pretty easy assignment. You're not going, going to investigate the murder. That's just the starting point. We just want you to do a story on how the town is coping a year on from this terrible shooting. So that's what he goes down to do, a fairly straightforward assignment. And only when he gets there, he finds that things aren't as they've been reported uh, and problematically reported in his own paper. Um, so he starts delving and as he delves into the mysteries of the town, he's having being forced to start dealing with his own sort of demons and his own problems at the same time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, as you say, he you drop the character Martin into this dying town and he starts investigating and meeting people like Manderley Blonde, who's a local bookstore owner and a young mother, the young constable who shot the priest and brought the church massacre to an end, and the strange old man who lives out by himself in the scrublands. So when you dropped your character Martin in that town... Initially, were you sort of imagining what you would have done in that situation as a journalist and sort of writing it as how you would have investigated it? Yeah, so Martin Skarsden is not me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't suffer from post-traumatic stress or anything like that. But yes, of course, it, the character is informed by my history as a journalist, how, I'm, how I might approach it or how a journalist might approach it. Um so, for example, one thing that Martin does is he takes a lot of photos just so he has them to refer back to. And that's a practice I have if I was out, say, doing one of these um, non-fiction books. I'd be taking lots of photos, just, you know, what's the soil look like? What's the sky look like? What's the town look like? Something like that. So, yeah, it's informed by my experience for sure. And in terms of the journalist going to a place after a traumatic event and writing a story about sort of the anniversary of that event, you've undertaken a similar assignment um, many years ago in the town of Jasper in Texas. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, during my time, I worked for many years for Dateline at SBS Television, so I'd go uh, as a television reporter. About 20 years ago, I went to a, this town, Jasper in East Texas, and a few months before I'd been there, some white extremists had um, taken an African-American man, James Bird Jr., tied him to the back of their pickup truck and dragged him to death along a bitumen road. And this was a shocking crime that, that, that shocked the United States but was reported around the world. And I went there to profile how the town was coping several months on so not to do a story on the murder, which had been well and truly covered in the a, in a US and international media. Um, and that was, that was a story very much about race. It was a racially divided town, not by law, but by custom. So you'd have, you know, a, a, a black bar and a white bar or a black supermarket and a white supermarket. It was very, very clear. And this racial division was... <laughs> Because the murder was so shocking, the people in the town had to address that. So there's none of there's none of that 
in Scrublands, but there is that idea of the journalist going to do a profile on a town affected by trauma. So I think, you know, I think that's where the idea came from. So people keep asking me, where did this idea come from? Where did that idea from? And I think that's where that idea came from. Mm, Okay. Um, I went to the World Press Photo Competition at the State Library of New South Wales a few weeks ago. Uh, So it was an exhibition about the most extraordinary photojournalism that's been conducted over the past year. And the winning photo reminded me of your book. So it was a photo taken during a political riot in Venezuela. um, And it's of a young man running down an alleyway wearing a gas mask and he's on fire. Um, And the reason it reminded me of your book is because, one, fire plays a big part in your book. And two, it made me think about the role of journalism and the ethics of that photographer snapping away at people during this chaos when there were people literally on fire around him. So are you sort of reflecting on the ethics of journalism at all as you wrote Scrublands, where you've got Martin here sort of digging up trauma? It wasn't front of mind, but it's there. Um, I'm not sure people are really aware of how affected some reporters can be, not just foreign correspondents, but people in Australia who report on traumatic events, um, you know, natural disasters, for example, bushfires, or, you know, say people who covered the tsunamis in Asia, mm. uh, whatever, um, often particularly photographers and, and camera operators, because they're often right up close, that it does affect people. And, and I think the media organisations now are much more aware of of that kind of the potential for post-traumatic stress, whereas I think, you know, 20 years ago it was more, oh, you know, just go and have a few drinks and sort of get over it sort of thing. It was that. So you're seeing that you can see the same sorts of issues with some reporters that you also get with, say, police or military people who have been in sort of dangerous situations. Um, One thing that is in the book, though, much in a much more light-hearted vein, if I put it like that, is that the the media gets stuff wrong. And my idea there wasn't really to, to make a commentary on the media. It was more, um, you know, I was writing, I was trying to have a bit of fun uh, as much as anything. And yes, I wanted to get it published maybe, but I was sort of playing with a few, few things. And you get these uh, crime books and you get a protagonist and they'll Sometimes they just never make a mistake. It's yeah. like they don't know everything, but, you know, there's someone's been killed. They're trying to find out who, who did it. There's a few red herrings, but as they investigate their way through, they sort of, they don't really make too many missteps. So I thought, oh, well, so Martin does get stuff wrong. And so do some of his colleagues. Um, and that was the idea there. So it was the idea of a protagonist, like, being flawed and getting stuff wrong and, you know, things things going badly. That was the idea rather than any commentary on the media or how the media does. And and I, you know, I would think that, rest assured, the media in Australia, the mainstream media is, is um, doesn't make nearly as many mistakes as Martin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it's one thing for a detective to have a few mm. stuff-ups and another thing for him to document each stuff-up in a national newspaper. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, So as you mentioned, Martin has these intense flashbacks to quite a traumatic incident that happened to him while he was on the Gaza Strip. Um, 
You've reported from Gaza, so what inspired that part of his character? Look, I was just, I think I was just thinking of, okay, what sort of, what sort of event could have caused this? So I was reported from Gaza after Hamas had taken over, um, and I had a driver there who, who had a beaten up old yellow Mercedes, and I'd learnt that uh, not long before, a French journalist that he'd been driving, someone had tried to kidnap him, and he and the driver had been able to talk them out of it, um, which is a little little bit concerning. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when I was there, I met the British journalist Alan, Alan Johnston, and not long after, he was kidnapped and held hostage by Islamic Jihad for, uh, for a few months. So, which was a big international story. So it kind of made sense to, to locate that there. But it really could have been, it really could have been anywhere, I think. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So we spoke a few weeks ago for Good Reading's cover story, and you said, and you said this um, again just before, that you probably weren't quite as well acquainted with crime novels as you should be. Yeah. Since yeah. then, have you made any progress on that front? Yes. Yes, I have. So I've read... Um, uh, I read Jane Harper's two books, both good. Sarah Bailey's two books, um, really good, fantastic. Um, she's got a real, really good turn of phrase. Uh, Dervla McTiernan's book, I read um, uh, Mark Brownie's book, Wimmera. Um, there's probably one or two others. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to, if you like, read my contemporaries, you know, if I can put it like that, who are also writing crime in Australia now, um, and very impressive. You know, it's kind of <laughs> it seems to be a, you know an emergence of quite a few writers at the moment. So yeah, it's kind of it's a good time. Absolutely. So, what makes a good crime novel for you? No, I. You can't get away from the plot. I, th- I think you can have all sorts of other stuff, but if your plot's not really working, then everything else is going to uh, fall off. But one thing that appeals to me about writing crime novels, as I said, I'm not really a crime novel tragic or anything, is that there's a lot of room for for other stuff in there. Psychology, motivation, character... Typically, you know, a crime novel is someone is murdered. So why? Why has someone gone and killed someone else? So it goes to motivation, it goes to character. There's room for some good writing, you know, mood, you know. Um, so you can have the bare bones of the plot, but you can do a lot of other stuff as well. And you get, I think, across crime writing, you get a spectrum. You get the, the ones that are sort of straightforward, police procedurals, something's happened and it's it's all about the plot. And then there's a, there's a whole spectrum books like, you know, I mentioned Peter Temple's books, so his final books, they're, okay, they're, they're crime books, but there's so much more happening there, you know, character studies and, uh, you know, his beautiful writing, et cetera. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of potential there and there's a lot of variation, I think, across different writers. But I do think, you know, you've, if you... If you don't have a good plot, if you if if people aren't sort of still trying to work out who did it or whatever, then you probably it's probably not going to work so well. 
Absolutely, yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Chris. Um, Scrublands, as I said, is on shelves as of today. I imagine it will be available from all good bookshops, including Good Readings online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs>